0: Okay, let's start. Let's start. Um, In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I want to take off from the readings this weekend. I've been thinking a lot about this um, recently, so if you'll bear with me. it's some of the work I'm doing coming out of the work we did together on Leo and John Paul and, and Benedict and particularly um, on Islam. You know, we, um, Christianity Christianity's a mysterious religion. Um, Judaism and Islam live under the law. They define themselves by the law. And you know that according to the law um, The sort of beginning assumption of everything is that we work as hard as we can to please God, to obey the law, to be good. Um, So the initiative seems to be on our side. God gave us laws, um, and we do everything we can to obey them. With Christ, that's reversed. I think we all know that. Um, we're, We're asked to live by faith, Um, not by works, although Paul pushes that awfully hard and James corrects it, but it's not that the law isn't important for us, because it is. God the Father gave us the laws, Yahweh gave us the Ten Commandments. Um, We believe in the Trinity, which means Christ is going to do nothing to disobey His Father. He's going to obey the laws. Yeah? I I mean, you know that I've stressed this forever. To me it's so important to get it straight. The laws are not unimportant to us. We obey, we're asked to obey the commandments. But Christ changed it. He he came to fulfill the law, so he didn't do away with it, but he fulfilled it in a divine love. So, unlike the religions that are under the law, like Judaism and Islam, we live by faith. Okay? And our understanding is that God did everything for us, that in our prayers, um, how does it put, he, he purchased the rewards of salvation for us. Those, that's in our prayers, right? He purchased the rewards for us. So he earned salvation by what he did for us. So according to our faith, the initiative is God's. He chose us, he loved us he loves us into his goodness so the work that we have is to open ourselves to what Christ asks we don't put the law away we don't ignore it or downplay it it's serious but we live by faith and um, the difference between us in Judaism and Islam is that we start we start with the belief that Christ purchased us our rewards. He did it for us. Because we know we couldn't have done it by ourselves, right? Obeying the law wouldn't do that. Our sin was against God. Obeying the law wouldn't give satisfaction for that sin. I'm just repeating stuff we've gone over before, right? Is everybody clear in that? So he did it. Paul's words, Christ's words, you were chosen before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world. We were chosen. So we begin believing not that we have to do everything we can to please God although we want to do that. It's that he loved us first and he loves us into his life. So unlike the people under the law, um, we believe that by following him we share an indwelling that's divine. Like the Trinity. He dwells in us, we dwell in him. We're, we're given the gift of an indwelling with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a part of our life. So, our religion is very different from Judaism and Islam. The initiative for us is with God. The work that we have to do is follow His commandments. Christ said, pick up your cross. So it's interesting in our, pep, the one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is because in so many of the passages that we're reading, people come to Christ believing in him, having faith in him, and they say do this and he does it, he does it. And they, he, he does it because they have faith. So they don't do anything, they come with a withered hand or blind or they've got demons, something's going on with them, but in their faith they go to Christ and he says, like the father with a fiat, let it be. When Christ speaks a word, it's not about something. It's one of it's one of the things that makes it clear that he's God. When he speaks something, it has an efficacy. It's done. Right? It's like a umpire in a game when he goes out, the guy's out. When Christ says, "Open your eyes," they're open. Okay. doesn't go through treatment. The guy has belief. He has faith; he's healed. The people, he says, when he he leaves his own town because in his own town people don't have faith and he can't perform any miracles. So faith for us is everything. But I think unlike the fundamentalists, we we also believe that faith is our ground position. But we have to do what Christ asks to join him. He purchased our life for us. The t- the question we face is, do we follow him? Do we try to do what he asks us to do? To love, to bear a cross, to die to ourselves, okay? Is that clear? So there are two different stances towards religion here. Two of them, Jewish and Islamic, are based on the law. They do everything they can to obey the law. If they're good, they will earn heaven. Christ always has already earned it for us. He purchased us. He purchased our rewards. The question is, do we follow him so that we can enter into his life, okay? In the reading this weekend, Paul is speaking to that fact. It's in the letters to Ephesians, he says, you were dead once in your transgressions, um, following the flesh, those are struggles all of us have. Um, He's calling us to follow God, to turn away from the world, disobedience, spirit that is not working the disobedience, it's all those things of the world. He." but God who's rich in mercy because of the great love he had for us even when we were dead in our transgressions he didn't wait until we good or we obeyed the law he gave himself freely that's what he asks us do that's why it's so hard um, because we're asked to give ourselves freely by grace we were saved raised up with him seated um, seated us with him in the heaven in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness to us. Here's the line I wanted to get to For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from you, it is the gift of God. It's not from works, so no one should boast. Christ did this for us. The challenge, the choice we have to make is whether we're going to follow him, give our lives for others the way he did for us so um thank you Lord for all the gifts that we have from you the great gift of yourself your life um strengthen us in our efforts to follow you um, forgive our sins pardon strengthen us to put them away you call us to be perfect you said be perfect as your father is Um, (laughs) I think most of us know how hard that is, but strengthen us in our efforts and let all that we're doing here strengthen our, um, our faith. Help us to find a strength here in what we're learning to make our faith richer, fuller, um, more complete, um, so that what we do is um, one with you. Um, I ask a blessing for all of us, those um, who have prayers, Um, I want to pray for um, David and Kay and their daughter Um, um, help them to be glad Um, she's home she's home or on her way so um, let their hearts pass her on Um, be glad um, and strengthen them um, in her absence let them be comforted knowing that she's with Christ um, I ask a blessing on Mary's son in his deployment. Watch over him if there are dangers. Surround him with your protection, and I ask a blessing on Chuck and Lori um, for their, um, the wedding, the upcoming wedding of their daughter. Um, particularly Lori, she's going to stew. When you get home, tell her that for me. Um, bless that heart of hers and um, 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 bless their daughter and. Um, the husband-to-be. Um, let everything that happens with them in the beginning of that marriage take them closer and closer to you. Um, ask her a blessing on our daughter, too, on her trip home from India. Keep her safe. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, Just to, I want to try to pick up our review and where we left off. Um, we've been, oh here, let me read, let me read one more Emily Dickinson poem to start. Don't don't See? Yeah, sure. No, no. Glad to have her. If anybody, um, David and Kay, Meredith and Lori, um, we've got your images. I mean, uh, there you are. Hi, Lori. By the way, congratulations on the upcoming wedding. So, we'd, um, we said a prayer for said a prayer for your couple, mostly for you. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, if, if you see anybody, do me a favor. Just here, just come and click on enter, okay? I think everybody's in. David, Kay, are you, well, they're showing here. David and Kay, are you here? There, yeah, there, okay, there you are, good, okay. All right. um, sorry, this technical stuff is just way beyond me. I'm going to read one more poem to finish our lyrics from by Emily Dickinson. In the poems that we've read, you know that um, she's celebrating abstinence or renunciations. Um, it's as if um, she's celebrating becoming fulfilled um, on those things we deny ourselves. Remember, um, we, we, we know um, the value of water by thirst, or we know the, the value of a victory by defeat. We've, you know, we've gone through all of those lyrics that are celebrating this theme of the importance of renunciations, of giving things up. Um, I, w- I want to read... I, gosh, Mike, Mike, I sorry, God. Thanks, Mike. Um, I want to read um, two poems that 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 speak beautifully to this theme, and then just add a note on it, and we'll turn to um, the Bible. Two of the poems, 523, um, 66. In both of them, she's, in an, a, an amazingly perceptive way, she's describing something that passes, OK? isn't. So many of the poems that we've read over the last couple of weeks. But there is a quality that I um, that I want to try to describe tonight because it's it goes so um, so directly to our belief. 523 as imperceptible leaves grief. As imperceptible leaves grief the summer lapsed away. Too imperceptible at last to seem like perfidy as if it betrayed us. A quietness distilled as twilight long begun, or nature spending with herself sequestered afternoon. The dusk drew earlier in, the morning fore and shone. There's something amiss in all these things a courteous yet harrowing grace as guest who would be gone. So it's all these things are passing, perishable. And thus, without a wing or service of a keel, our summer made her light escape into the beautiful. 66. There's a certain slant of light on winter afternoons that oppresses like the weight of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. Aren't there times in your life where you're doing nothing? You can be at home doing nothing and suddenly a pang hits you? It's like a despair. It's like a feeling somewhere out of nowhere it isn't a response to anything around you, it just hits, it just comes, and then it's gone. Um, Heavenly hurt it gives us, we can find no scar but internal difference where the meanings are. It's as if we carry deep within us these things, these longings, these fears that something may happen or some longing we have, and it suddenly hits us. We go on about our chores, whatever it is we're doing, but that thing is still there. It's deep in our souls. None may teach it anything. Tis the seal, despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens, shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. Now, somebody could read Emily Dickinson's poems and think that she's um, just a dark person. Um, I want to try to put her the poetry that we've read in a different perspective. Remember we've said over and over and over again that poetry always takes us back to the concrete world. Out of our heads we're returned to reality. It could be a Faulkner story, it can be Shakespeare. It's not Benedict, it's not John Paul and Fidel Razio, we're back in a concrete world as if we're living concretely in the world that we know in our bodies. So it always returns us to the concrete world out of abstractions, takes us back to the world, but something is presented there that makes us aware of things in life that very often we miss. We're too preoccupied with things. There's a beauty to all poetry, so one of the things we experience is beauty and order of music. I've been maintaining from the beginning, remember that That all poetry has a musical center. Hi Alexis, it's good to see you. No don't sit back, you come up here. Come up here where I can reach you. (laughs) Come on, Chuck's got a chair up here. It's good to see you. Um, Here's the point I want to make because if you read her literally, you always get the sense that something good is about to happen and it passes and she takes a pleasure in its absence, right? The value of water is known by thirst, right? The value of death is known or life is known by death. Take all those things away and then we know how important they are. We've been reading that in every one of her poems. But in so many of the ones, particularly the ones I just read, you get a sense that there's something there and it's about to fulfill itself And then it passes. Now I just want to dwell on that to offer a reflection on that for a moment. What she's showing is there's always a goodness there. It can be the summer passing. You know as in the one poem? Remember? It can be the summer passing. Our summer made her light escape into the beautiful. What an extraordinary, I mean, what poets can do with words? Summer's passing, it's gone. Winter's coming. There was something there full of ripeness and goodness, but it's gone. The same thing of a certain slant of light on winter afternoons, right? When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. It's there. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. Something was there. That's the point I want to make, that I want to stress. She's always aware of a goodness that's there, but because we're in a fall, And we suffer from a wound of death, just before that goodness fulfills itself, which would be the perfection of heaven, its wound takes it and it's gone. Is everybody clear? There's a goodness there. It's the beauty. It can be in an apple, a good piece of meat. We so take this stuff for granted, but lose it and suddenly its value increases for us. But the the part of the beauty of what she's doing is making us aware that there's that there is this goodness about to complete itself. So it gives hints of paradise, of something complete, but we're in a fall. So just before it can be perfected and hold the way it would be in paradise, it's gone. So one of the things to hold on to here is that she's not just pessimistic and she's not just showing that all things fade, it's important to know that there's this good here. She senses it, she feels it, she can describe it in words. The beauty of her poetry is she catches it just when it goes. It makes us aware both of the beauty of something, some goodness present in her life, and of death, the fall. We're not in heaven, but we have intimations of it. We have intimations of this good. Yeah? Otherwise people would go out and commit suicide. What's there to live for? Because there's this extraordinary goodness in life and so often because we want too much we miss it or because we're pessimistic we don't see it. She's celebrating all these poems, these moments when something's there and and it's about to pass. Okay, so people can misread her poems they can just think this is all about this negative stuff things are lost or but There's this extraordinary beauty to something and she feels how vulnerable and how ephemeral it's passing just before it completes itself. Because the only place it can complete itself is paradise, heaven. But we get these hints. There's a real beauty to her poetry. Let me stop, okay? Any questions about that or comments? I'm always urging you to go back and read the poems after we've done them, because you know it goes to your um, the, the first time I read these poems i 've told you before first time I've read these poems i couldn't make sense of them it it's worth repeating because when we reread them they make so much more sense than they do the first time so go back and read them they 're really lovely they're all lovely okay okay back to um, Matthew, um, we've been talking about the negative influences of modern biblical scholarship. You know that so many moderns are encouraged by the scientific presumptions of our age to read Scripture through scientific principles, and it's it's wrecked havoc with the Bible. It's led people to. Um, to try to rational away, rationalize away the miracles of Christ. Because if you're a scientist or a materialist, you know, and we, we know this better now, I'm trusting I mean, from Chesterton, but if you're a materialist, you don't believe in miracles. So when you read scripture, you gotta find some way of explaining away all that happened, and people do that. That's what they do with the Bible. They've got to explain it all away, they deny it, and modern scholarship is full of that kind of rationalizing. The Protestant world introduced its own problems because, since it put its faith on, on a basis of private feelings, it means um, people are more inclined to approach the, bri- the Bible um, by a principle of subjectivity. <laughs> whatever I read is right, whatever you read is, you can make whatever you want. I, I'm, I'm assuming everybody sees the danger of that. If you take the objective truth away, there's nothing there. Um, Either Christ is objectively real and not um, a function of what we want to make him. He's objectively real or he's not. Our belief is he is and our belief is in the Eucharist he's present. That's not just a wafer. And our faith doesn't bring it alive as it does for Luther, right? Luther says that that wafer only becomes real by your faith when you take it. So all the uneaten wafers can get tossed away. We don't believe that. We believe that when they're sanctified, they are the body and blood of Christ when we eat them. That's an objective reality. That's not a function of anything subjective in ourselves. Okay. So approaches to the Bible have in so many ways dismantled it, debunked it, explained it away. Last week I, I, I had mentioned that um, two of the major problems that we encounter in in um, What modern scholars do is um, um, what they will call the anonymity of the Gospels, that we don't know who wrote them. Um, They were written by people we don't know. It's one way of um, calling into doubt the Bibles. If we can say they're anonymous we don't know, they're just repetitions of people before them, the whole world disappears. It just evaporates or the fact of contradictions between one Bible and or one gospel and another. We're going to see that next week when we finish Matthew. I want to look, in fact you can look ahead on this if you'd like. We'll finish Matthew next week and the following week we'll start John. At the end of Matthew, Matthew gives us a description of Christ rising, the the women going to the tomb, the men going. The account in Matthew is very radically different from the account in John. In fact, they, you can say, pretty truthfully, they seem to contradict each other and if that's true, then it's fair enough for a critic to say they're contradictory. You can't trust these things. So we've got to be able to answer that stuff if, <laughs> if faith and reason go together in our Catholic faith. And you know, I've been, in, I mean, all of the people we've been reading for the last couple of months of, been saying It's absolutely crucial to get those two powers together. So there's in, these inherent contradictions. Take a look at the end of Matthew, um, read the end of John, because one of the questions I'm going to start with next week is explain that. Something's wrong. Either the critics are right and people made this stuff up, or they're wrong, and we've got a task to understand what's going on here. Is that clear? OK. Um, in, uh, when I think when Father James was at St. At, um, Francis, I think he recommended it, this book and, and put out a stack of them. Do you guys have this at C's? I know I've, Father James periodically puts out stacks of books. Have you guys heard of it, The Case for Jesus? Only
1: in your
0: ago. Sorry? No, in the email, yeah. Um, Brant Pitre, um, who did a wonderful tape called um, Jesus the Roots, the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, wonderful tape. Beautiful, I mean, beautifully done. If you have any questions about the meaning of the Eucharist, pick up that CD or read the book. It's Brant Pitre, Jesus the Roots, Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. It's wonderful because it it puts Christ in the Jewish tradition where he belongs and shows that he fulfills it. To miss that is some ways not to do justice to the Jewish tradition or Christ. He did a book called The Case for Jesus. He's a um, biblical scholar. He, he teaches at I think Augustine Institute graduate classes. Um, he's, he writes clearly, he's intelligent. He makes the case that those people who Make the argument that the gospels are anonymous; that we don't know who wrote them. He just takes that and obliterates. I mean, it's just so stupid. When you read this, you'll—it seems to me when you read it, you—you—it's impossible to come away without saying how stupid these people are. I mean, genuinely, these are these are men with bright minds. They're all articulate. They're all well educated. Most of them are college graduates, and they're making these intellectual cases that call into question the Gospels. And they're arguing that they're all anonymous. They were produced by people we don't know. He takes those arguments and simply dismantles them. Um, shows how, really, really, you can't read it without coming away thinking, these are articulate, Man, they're just dumb. I mean, when you, when you give, when you listen to the reasons they give, they, they're supposed to sound And by the way, I think this is the typical approach you'll find on Wikipedia. You go into Wikipedia, this is the sort of (laughs) presentation you'll get on the Gospels, um, because they're so intellectual. Um, Petrie's not lacking in intellect, but he's using his mind to show that what these people are doing is actually, it makes no sense at all. You have to work harder to try to disprove something when you can't you do to defend what's already there." Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So um, it's a good book to look at um, for those of you want to, you know, look into this a little bit more deeply. So we were looking at some of the problems that we face as moderns reading the Bible and in a culture that denies miracles and in families with children who are growing up influenced by ideologies and so up these same arguments. Um, I want to take a minute just to describe one of the important things um, that's going on at the time the gospel writers were writing. So if you look at my notes, um, if you've read them you'll know. Um, we know from the Iliad and the Odyssey that the, the Greek world had become a very powerful world um, just before Christ came into the world. The Greeks, as a matter of fact, had conquered Jerusalem. And we know from Maccabee, if you read Maccabees, you'll get it, you'll get an account of this. When they conquered um, Israel, the, Jew, um, the Jews, Jerusalem, they forced the Jews to practice their religion. So they'd go into the temple and force the Jews to renounce their God in favor of the Olympian God. You know how much I love the Olympian gods because you know how much I love the, and the Odyssey, so. But, but now I'm not talking about a work of literature, I'm talking about a historical fact. They came in and forced the Jews to worship the Olympian gods, and if they didn't, they executed them. So they were forced to convert or die. Okay, so when the Gospel writers are writing, they're writing for a very mixed audience. The Romans are the occupying force, So the Romans have power. The Greeks had had power before the Roman conquest. So the gospel writers are writing to a Jewish audience that's surrounded by different beliefs, the Hellenic gods, the Roman gods. Suddenly, this man comes into the world, and and its roots are Old Testament. The Jews are turning away from the Old Testament. They're renouncing it or, or risking their lives and living it. This man comes into the world and says he is God. So you can imagine this is um, a world given to myths, the Greek myths, the Roman myths, the Old Testament, into this world comes a man who says he's God and he does all of these amazing things. So the Gospel writers are writing at a time when the Jews are being influenced by all, all these things outside, these different belief systems, okay? Um, where's I gonna go? Oh, I wanted to remind you just in this context. Remember when we um, when we looked at the beginning of Luke and Luke said, um, I want to straighten out the account because there are all these different accounts of what happened with this guy. So you can imagine the sorts of things that our people are writing about Christ. How they fit in or didn't fit in with the Hellenic beliefs or the Roman beliefs or the Jewish beliefs. So the Gospel writers are facing a real task, okay? And they all know it. One of the problems with modern criticism is, you know, is that modern critics tend to read in a historicist mindset. If you didn't know what that was before, you know it now because we've read Chesterton. Historicism means that all things are historically conditioned. There are no more universals. That was one of Chesterton's argument. That was one of John Paul's concerns. It was one of Benedict's. Benedict and John Paul both said it's absolutely essential that we hold on to that Greco-Roman world because it was the first world that introduced us to universals. I'll say that again. Everybody holding on? Both of them said it's absolutely essential to hold on. In a here, dead white men. The modern world is doing everything it can to get rid of that past. John Paul and Benedict are both saying it's absolutely crucial that we hold on to it because it was the greco Roman world that first made us aware of universals. Aristotle, Plato, Homer, Virgil, all those thinkers. We went into that. If that's not clear let me stop for a minute because I, I don't want to rush past this because the modern historicists will say all of these things are culturally conditioned. There's no meaning beyond that. Every one of the gospel writers was writing to a particular you know, audience, but they were also aware that something universal had come into the world. God came into the world for all people. They weren't just writing about a Semitic man, a Jewish man, they were writing about a Jewish man who happened to be God. So they're speaking to a concrete circumstances but they're also speaking to something that will that will be timeless. That will be forever. That can't be explained just by historical circumstances. Is that crucial. What I'm trying to do is take on some of these historical currents, the these modern approaches to the Bible but also just make everybody aware of what was going on at the time, too. Let me stop. Any questions here? There are. I can tell by your faces, and nobody's asking anything. Come on, you guys.
1: So, your. Uh, if. So, the premise is that the uh, modern biblical scholars often. Uh, Cast the uh, the biblical authors as as they wrote with with reference to a historicist uh, perspective that they were they were based on they were writing based out of their culture. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, much 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 of the, much of the text.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's a truth to that. I mean, I hope every I don't want to make this a black and white. I hope everybody's hearing. I'm, I'm just trying to help everybody become aware of the task we face if we talk about the Bible with our own children and our families at work, wherever we're going. There's a truth to it. I mean historical conditions are real and they can't be ignored, but to make that everything is to falsify something else that's going. There's something transcending historical circumstances going here. There's a transcendent being entering time. And we're gonna see, it's actually gonna show up tonight. To to me, it's gonna be an interesting thing because it raises this question of how human Christ was and how divine and where we see both of those powers. Where do we see his human nature and where do we see his divine nature? Because he was born into a Jewish world. His roots are Jewish, yeah? But he's also God. So, any Any questions before we turn to the Bible? Yeah, Mary, go.
1: I guess if I'm going to study some what somebody says about the Bible, I better make sure it has the imprimatur
0: and the official or whatever. Yeah, you know, right. The church. Yeah. And, you know, it's been thoroughly researched. Yeah. I think it's okay
1: to read that other stuff just to say, "Oh, this is stupid," you know, <laughs> like you
0: said. Yeah. So if you read his. With other people and see where they're coming from. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the, it, uh, certainly, I hope. I mean, one of the things that's a constant in the work that we've been doing is that um, I don't think we give our powers of reason enough credit. We. We, we, we don't carry that burden very well, I don't think. And everything that we've been doing for the last six months has been to give reason its place so that we can make a defense um, of our faith. Faith is a greater power than reason, but, but in our you know, I mean, all of the, one of the premises of the, of the writings that we've been um, reading, Leo, John Paul Benedict is the modern world has lost its head genuinely lost its head we have to recover the role of the intellect we have to get that back if we're going to keep our faith straight otherwise we're going to people are people are leaving the church in droves and lots of them are going to a fundamentalist world it's much simpler there's something extraordinary going on in Catholicism we've got to get better at knowing what it is, and defending it. I have a yeah, Cool. Okay. About a paragraph earlier, you we were
1: talking um, about the early Christians, okay, and how they followed Christ, okay, everything he said, and I thought to myself, if I was one of those very early Christians, when Christ was walking in those three years, I don't know if I really would
0: have believed, yep. because, yeah, Yep. Supposedly, miracles happen, when it's illusions, and all kinds yep. of strange things going on. And so, I probably would be one of the David Thomas's Thomases. I don't think dummy. I mean, it's just but I just.
1: I, mean, but why did so many problems?
0: Yep. I wonder, it's because they yep. So much
1: persecution, yep. So they yep. Started, started grow, 10,
0: 40, yep. Yep. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that because I think it's true. To just to bring it up to time, I'm so glad you said that because it's true. Um, I mean, we keep getting descriptions of an inner circle that's following Christ. They've seen it and they know, so they've seen it again and again. But we also have images of crowds following who've only seen a miracle or heard something, and it's really interesting. You know, how? how I mean, to bring it up to time, I'm, I'm so glad you made that comment, Charles. But um, imagine, imagine what your response to be with Christianity Day if you grew up Islamic if that's the way you believed and for 25 years you spent your life believing that and suddenly introduced somebody introduced you just to the Bible to its writings not Christ just to its writings what would you do? If you were a fundamentalist growing up in a fundamentalist world and heard about Catholics (laughs) and asked to consider a Catholic position on something what would your response be? if for 25 or 30 years you've been living according to that belief. So if you grew up believing in the Olympian gods or the Roman gods, or you grew up Jewish believing that a a messiah would come and the law was the Mosaic law and you were very reverent in following it, and this guy comes into the world and says he's God, what would you, you know, I'm so glad you said that because I just, I mean it, it, it should, make us more aware of the gravity of the situation we're facing. This can't be just explained away lightly. When you're dealing with somebody who's been raised Islamic for 30 years or Jewish, you know, a, a superficial, I mean, sometimes that sentence will do amazing things, but, but what we're facing, I think, is just much graver than that. It's, it's much closer to exactly what you're describing. I'm so glad you said that. Karen, yeah.
1: bias and mistruth told about the Catholic Church. And so I think that, in some ways, it might have been almost easier now, uh, then than now, to accept it, because there's all these great confabulations about what yeah. Catholics
0: do. Certainly in the first few centuries, I think, after the church I mean, yeah. the church gets established. One, it's, it, I think this has been said before. In some ways, it would have been easier for Christianity um, to be accepted, although Christians were persecuted, as you know early on, because most people at that age believed in supernatural a supernatural order, a transcendent order, the Olympian order, the Roman order, mythic gods in our age a materialist age scientific age we don 't believe most people don't believe in a divine order so in some ways it is I think it's much harder to um, to make a defense. That's why I think it's so important to, to listen to C.S. Lewis, to G.K. Chesterton, the arguments that they make because those are our ways into the faith. That's, you know, that's the way reason enters into it or it's, it's the ground on which our faith rests. Here, let's go to any, any more comments or question? Just one last review before we look at the chapters for tonight. One of the major chapters that we looked at last week um, was uh, Matthew's description of the temptation and um, I wanted to give the time that we gave to it because in those temptations I think um, God is revealing to us the whole scope of the temptations we face all of them. In those three temptations, Christ faced every possible temptation we could face. Some combination of them, one or the other. You remember the first one, turn bread into, or stones into bread. Um, the temptation Christ was facing and that we face is that to make our earthly necessities, our, our human neediness, more important than our love of God. So that if we turn, if we are tempted to turn to powers who seem to answer all of our needs, it's a question whether or not we're compromising our faith. Right? Christ is making it clear we do not ever let physical necessities become greater than God. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna underscore this. If <laughs> You guys have tolerated this as long as you have. If you look at modern movies today, think about Breaking Bad, because that was on I think for eight years. I watch movies in, in which somebody's facing a hardship, his, canc- his wife's got cancer, he doesn't have enough money to pay for it. So what does he do in our world? Steals. Rob's a bank, thank you. I mean isn't that true? In our world if you're facing a difficulty, the answer is you go steal from somebody or you embezzle or... but you don't, you don't struggle with the suffering trusting that something or, or, or doing without. In America to do it out today is humiliating, so we make physical necessities greater than God. First temptation, do not do that. Second temptation was throw yourself off, right? We don't tempt God. How often do we do things presuming that he will rescue us? I don't know about you, but I, see, I mean I can see a lot of my own sins there, but um, we, we have confession, so we go back to confession when we sin, but um, are we taking seriously enough that we're asked not to presume on God? That we take seriously the burdens of our crosses, that we pick them up? Because if we don't, once again, we're making something greater than God. It's Satan working something demonic in the world. We're asked to be prudent, we're asked to be prudent, to not take things for granted. And I think that's not an uncommon fault. Those are pretty common faults. Um, We get away with a lot because um, we're a fairly affluent world. We make a lot of money, we have homes, we, you know, we can take care of things. We take a lot for granted. Are there ways in which we are presuming on God, taking Him for granted? Are we doing what He asked? The third temptation was power, right? Wasn't it the third? Um, worship me, and you can have control. What was the? What was? What was that pointing to? What's wrong with that?
1: Don't let the world become more important than
0: God. God again, power, power, authority. Because if we ever turn that authority over to even a family, if the family becomes autocratic, the godfather, I, mean, I don't know where you want to go with that, um, the state, socialism, communism, if we give the state that kind of power so that we have fewer, this is stunning because more and more people are making arguments in favor of, in support of socialism today. And it's, at least it is for me, it's impossible for me to hear those arguments without seeing people go to sleep. One of the reasons you do that is because you take less responsibility for your own life. You turn it over to the state. The basis of Western culture, the fundamental basis between the East and the West, and everything that happens going westward, remember all the movements from the Iliad, the Odyssey, to Rome, to all of those westward, was um, in support of human freedom and man's free will and if you know Thomas I've given you this quote before the root of all freedom this is st. Thomas he's absolutely right the root of all freedom is in the reason because you cannot separate reason from free will they only make sense when they're in conjunction right you only have choices because your mind can say do this or this take away your mind and there are more choices you're just you're not your thing So the whole movement, the whole value of Western culture has been in defense of defending freedom, free will, the powers of the mind to know. The East has been everywhere else but there. And the dangers we're facing today, I hope everybody knows, are against those two things. We're, we're not human beings anymore who are responsible for our actions. We are things. We're the product of forces over which we have no control. That's Darwin, that's Freud, that's Marx. Um, this, what does, I mean, we, when we did Dante, you, you, if, go back to Dante for a second. Remember when we left hell and went into purgatory? The first levels of purgatory were divided according to the degree of responsibility somebody took for their actions those who waited, those who put off, those who made excuses. It's only when they took responsibility for themselves that they could start purgatory. And I suggested then that our church is purgatory. That we are called, I believe, we are called to live purgatory now. We should be doing everything we can to become better, We should be doing everything we can to help each other become better. In a Protestant world, you get married and you leave each other alone, because you're saved. In a Catholic world, we believe we can help each other, we can change. We can't change who we are, but we can become better or worse. Our Catholic faith is always asking us to become better, to overcome our sins, to help each other do that. And you all know that that's not easy. We all know that. So, so those are the three temptations, right? Those are the... Um, and immediately following those he, 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 he's, he speaks directly to the hypocrisies that men are capable of. That one of the dangers that we face is um, presenting an exterior according to the law. We're respectable, we do this, we're successful, We're a college teacher, a professor, whatever we are. Um, But inside, who are we? Are we really living Christ? So the whole direction of everything that he says, following that is already taking us into the interior. It's where we do the work with the Spirit. It's not the law. We're We're not encouraged to disobey the law. We follow the law. But while we do it, we also are involved with the work with the Spirit inside. Are we getting closer to Christ? Are we doing what he asks with ourselves, with those we love in our world? That's where we left off, okay? Let me stop and we'll go to the next eight chapters, but let me stop. Any, any questions or comments on the first eight chapters or first seven, whatever we did? Gloria, you look busy. Do you have any questions? Sorry. You have any questions? No. <laughs> I can't tell you the sort of feeling of schizophrenia I have right now looking at you on a screen and looking at Chuck right in front of me. It just is, it is, it is playing weird tricks on my soul right now. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I feel like I'm... Dev- Would you get back over here where you belong, Lori, please? Yeah, come. Any questions or comments? Okay. Um, what I want to... Um, if you've looked at my notes you know that what I've done is present some of the main I don't like calling them (laughs) themes I have a real problem with this I don't like calling what's going on here themes that's for literature so I'm calling them Christ's concerns Um, if you look at the concerns I'm saying that one of the things that runs through the first 16 chapters as we've read them is the importance of faith again and again people are coming to him something's going to happen that's that's going to throw a a monkey wrench in our, I think, our reading, but let me see what happens when I get there. But anyway, faith is probably the most important concern running through these first 16 chapters. Um, He's healing people constantly, Um, he upbraids the cities, remember in chapter 11, um, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he says of them that it will be worse, it will be worse for them than Tyre and Sodom, or Sodom and Gomorrah, that those cities will rise up in judgment. So um, I'm, I'm going to take a guess here, I'm going to take a stab and say that one of the reasons he can say that now, because Sodom and Gomorrah were pretty bad cities you know, they went in flames, Is because he's here. So for a city, so he's not just condemning individuals the way he does in his parables very often, he sends them to hell, he's condemning cities because Christ has come. So people are in the presence of something that didn't exist in Sodom and Gomorrah, which says that um, when there's a greater grace the corruptions will be greater when that grace goes bad. Remember Shakespeare's line, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds? Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. If a grace goes bad, it will go far worse when it turns evil than just a natural badness. Right? You put a bad stake out on the sidewalk and under the sun and see what happens. Put a very rich stake out on the sidewalk and watch what happens. The rich stake is gonna be full of maggots, far more, right? When a grace goes bad, it goes far worse for a grace than a natural good. So faith is a constant and it applies not only to humans but to cities. Um, he is constantly upbraiding his um, disciples and I don't want to look at this because I, I want to get to some other things, but I want to take a second with it. He, he rebukes P- Peter a number of times, on the sea, a couple of times, when he's teaching them parables, um, he says, how long do I have to put up with you guys? Um, Suzanne and I were talking about this the other day, and, and I don't wanna give our exact words, but somebody give me a word that describes what Christ is doing when he does this with his disciples. Give me a word. Or let me put it different. I'm, I'm gonna use the word rebuke. I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb, scorn something close to contempt. Now I know those are not... I'm pushing it here to try to make a point. How would you describe Christ when he's saying, how long do I have to put up with you guys? Or man of little faith. He says that to Peter a couple of times. He's... I mean, it's hard to hear him without hearing something really severe. Impatience, I believe. See? Impatience, at the least. Impatience.
1: About the, the way encouraging, like he's making him feel bad, so maybe they'll be encouraged to okay,
0: let me try hard. <laughs> That's the kind of encouragement comes when somebody gets a kick in the because it's. I don't see much patience with Christ. In fact, in fact let me put it differently. I, I think one, it's, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Seems to me what's happened. Let me put this differently He's human, He's human. In fact, let me get to this now. Hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to a root problem here. Chapter 10. Early on, five. He's commissioning his disciples. This is the first time he gathers them together to commission. This is his first commission. Okay? These 12. Jesus sent out charging them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is in. He says, go on and on. Cast out demons, do all that you do. But he says here at the beginning, do not go anywhere but the house of Israel, the chosen people. Shortly after this, Christ is going to meet, or just before this, he goes to the centurion, a centurion comes to him, a centurion. He's going to meet the woman, the, the woman at the well, and, and it's one here who asked that his daughter be, her daughter be healed, Samaritan. He's doing these things outside of the chosen people. and At one point, he hears, he's going to turn from the chosen people and say, you refuse this, now I'm going to the Gentiles. What does that say about Christ's human nature, or his divine nature? Does he change? Does this not catch anybody by surprise? He's saying to everybody, or he's saying to his disciples, "Go." this is emphatic, this is an absolute, it's an imperative. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the... He came for his people, for God's chosen, they had turned away, he came to save them. I, we don't have time to do this. How many, how many of the parables keep showing the old order and the new? The, the prodigal son, the new, the old. Think about all those, or the... Um, God, so many of them, I can't recall them. But so many of them are dealing with old covenant, new. The guardians or the stewards who are doing this, who didn't do this. Or the wedding guest. Those who were chosen, those who were invited, ignored it. So go out to the highways and get anybody you want. That's the Gentiles. Repeatedly, often he keeps using parables that speak to the chosen, those he came for, and the Gentiles. But here he's starting out by saying, "Go to none of these places." Is does he do this aware that? They're gonna start here and go elsewhere? Or does he do this because that's why he came and he's limited to that view of things and at some point he will change.
2: I don't see change. I think it's he has to start with the chosen people to fulfill salvation history and all the prophecies and focus that attention for a certain amount of time and then spread out with time, but like start there and then as word spreads and, and faith grows in that community, then he can, but he has to start there. The, you know, the
0: house of Israel. Okay, do, let me put it differently. Do things go according to plan? No.
2: Mm-hmm. Go
0: ahead, Bob. Wait, go ahead.
1: Uh, no, because he, he's preaching to them. They're not accepting him because they had anticipated the king, number one, that was going to rule, mm-hmm. not someone just coming in and preaching and so mm-hmm. they. They're rejecting him, and you can only reject it so long. So then, let's go over here and see if we're accepted. And at the same time, spreading the news, and then maybe that can come back and correct their thoughts. Yeah.
2: I think most early Christians were converted from or were Jews who followed Christ. I mean, I read that somewhere, and that's my understanding that the early church. You know, the greatest part of the early church were Jerusalem. Jews, you know, yeah. who followed Christ. And then the outreach to the Gentiles was mainly spearheaded by Paul um, and then finally approved by Peter. <laughs> but,
0: um, <laughs> but we don't see any of that here with Christ already. What? Well, he, I mean, go back to the point that I was making before. Um, he sees a faith in the centurion like he's not seeing better he says that repeatedly he turns away from his own town because they're refusing he goes to the samaritan woman heals he says um, i'm not here to feed she says even the
2: Canaanite wait wait yeah of oh, sorry, Canaanite. with her daughter
0: wait 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 he says i don't i didn't come to feed she says even the masters drop crumbs yeah. to their dogs or you know and so
2: But there were examples of faith. A <laughs> woman with the hemorrhage. I mean she was the owner right. of Israel. Right. There were great examples of faith. All the people that followed him, all the women that followed him, his own disciples were all, you know, Jews.
0: I'm not arguing, or not or I'm not to say I want to be careful with my words. I don't think he I'm not disputing I that.
2: I think he, he sowed the seeds where they need to be sowed at the right time. And then
0: Okay, let me ask it differently since you're gonna press this. Wait, go ahead, Mary. I was gonna say
1: he didn't go out to those people. They came to him, begging
0: him. Often, to right? To do
1: something for me. Right. The Canaanite
0: woman, right. the centurion's servant. Well, she didn't come to him. He ended up being there, and she did. Did she at the well? There are two women. Yeah, you well, Yeah, a there's there's the well. two different women. One at the one of, and they're both outside the Jewish world. Yeah, Samaritan Canaanite. The woman at the well said, "Give me this life-giving water, right, so that I don't have to come here and draw draw this stagnant water." Well. Yeah. And and but the
1: Canaanite woman, she's the one who said, because her daughter was dying. She but even the dogs said, eat the scrap. So they're right. all going to him, asking him. The centurions are they're asking him. And you said,
2: or well, he said. Faith is what's important, so right. they were exhibiting faith, and that was probably stronger than ethnicity, ethnicity yeah. or tradition, yeah. or even his own family, his own mother, yeah. right? He pointed out that, yes, fine, she's my natural mother, but what's more important is that she is...
0: He'll go, you're my mother, you're my she's father, and it's a grace. She,
2: yes, yeah.
0: she's... Is, uh, so nobody's gonna... Uh, hold on for a second because you know I mean you've done a good job is there any evidence that um, that makes us aware that Christ is human with all that so he's both perfectly both but is there anything going on that makes us aware that something's going on with him that just can't be it said I can't remember how Suzanne put this the other day but I think she said when she was younger she said he's God he can do anything he could didn't have to die or could die or not suffer or that he's human and what I'm asking right now is there are there any indications that that are meant to help us be aware we cannot ever forget that he's human that he's taking on our human nature because if we if we minimize that, it seems to me we're minimizing how great what he did is. Are you
2: asking just about Matthew? What we
0: yeah, did Well, all the gospels? I wanna I'm trying to restrain myself. Sure, go ahead. I'm well, thinking about the, the ten leftons when they came. Oh again, and right. And then and only one came back. Yeah. That to me. Right. It's right. another example.
2: Right. And only right. or one came back to, to uh, respond. Yeah. So he showed a human side there that he, I don't know, also he showed a lot of pity for people. The compassion of Jesus, right here, Matthew 9.35. They were like sheep without a shepherd. His heart was moved with pity for them. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> <My favorite. laughs> also, also, you know, all the things like spitting, making mud to heal the blind man, Um, weeping at Lazarus' tomb, the agony in the garden, the um, turning over the tables in the temple, all these things I think are...
0: You don't think that's godlike? They're very human. Huh? They're They're very human. Oh, right, yeah, good. Yeah. Well, yeah, and divine. Particularly the, you know, turning out the tables and throwing people out of the temple. I mean, they're violating God, I mean that's it's hard for me. Let me go, I don't want to lose this, let me go back. This started when I was asking how would you describe his rebuke of Peter? Let me just offer this thought and you can dwell on it or argue or whatever you want to do. It's interesting for me to hear him keep saying how long do I have to put up with you know and Peter, man, oh man of little faith, um, because we hear that as a human rebuke. That's the word that we would use. I I mean, I would even add something like scorn, but but I can't because that's Christ. What I'm saying or trying to say here, I'm not, don't think I'm doing a very good job, but it's important to see that when he does things like this, it's God being mediated through a human agency. So, we have to, we just have to be aware of that in the categories that you use, so when I want, when I want to say scorn or rebuke, you know, that, that, or in, to me it's a little bit stronger than impatience, but because, because he gets upset with the disciples, he's gonna get really upset with Peter at one point, it's important to remember that every, everything divine in him is mediated through his human nature. It's not God in the sky, Throwing down thunderbolts, or it's not a type of like um, Zeus or Jupiter or some cosmic figure. This is a human being, but he's carrying godhead in him because the whole mission, the whole point of what he did, purpose for his coming was to redeem us. He's a perfect human being, huh? He's
2: a perfect human being. Yes, unlike anyone we've ever. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Here
0: go sorry go ahead yeah. <laughs> no perfect and, and, it, and it raises my question I'm going to press this even though so is he learning anything as a human being even if he's a perfect human being at, at the, so I'm gonna to go to the end I'm sort of cheating on you I don't want to. I'm gonna to get to this because I, I don't want to get I don't want to get completely disrailed which is what I'm doing right now at the very end he says what um, why, why are you why'd you abandon me this is God I think it's important that we never forget he's completely human so it raises at least for me it raises a question when he sends out his disciples and go nowhere and let me add to that now this go to um, 11 Um, he's chastising the disciples again and the people um, who are denying him Just before that in 10 he says, I also will acknowledge before my father who's in heaven, but whoever denies me before men I also will deny. This is not a pushover, this is not an Arian man, this is God. Somehow we have to, you all know what I mean by Arian. Arianism was the belief, the early heresy that Christ was all man. And there, I think there's an I think there's an Aryan tendency in the fundamentalist mind in treating Christ as a buddy. He's my buddy, you know. He's my friend. Christ is pretty serious a lot of the time. Um, he's not somebody to play around with. Um, anyway, he's, he, just after saying he's going to deny whoever denies him. He says he's um, chastising the disciples and the people, and he says eleven seven. A reed shaken by the sun. What'd you, why, where, where, where did you go? He's, heard, he's hearing what's happening to John. What did you go into the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind. Why then did you go out? To see a man clothed in soft raiment? That is, are you watching a drama? Is this for your entertainment? He's speaking to people who are so caught up in their own worlds that they, they cannot enter into what's happening. To see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, those who wear soft raiment are in kings houses. Why then did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it's written, behold I send my messenger before thy face who shall prepare thy way before thee. John isn't just a prophet, he's a prophet preparing the way for God. That's how important he is. And here's the line I wanted to get to, truly I say to you among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and men of violence take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied, prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears um, to hear, let him hear. And he says, what shall I compare you to, this generation? Um, He's comparing them to children in a marketplace, calling. We piped to you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he's a demon. That is because he didn't practice the, the traditions of the the Jewish people. He was fasting in a far more serious way than they would. They said he's taken over by a demon. There's the, there's the effect of the law, that it simply gets in the way of their seeing John. So they accuse him of being demonic, possessed. Um, For John came neither eating nor drinking, they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, because remember his disciples ate on the Sabbath, So they're eating when they shouldn't, and they say, behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. All that he's doing can't be understood by the law, and everybody under the law is finding nothing but evil around them. Seeing bad in John, seeing bad in Christ. I want to go back to this line. Why did you come out? Among women, among men born of women, nobody's greater than John. Yet he who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and, men of, and the violent take it away. That's the, what's the meaning of that line? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and men of violence take it by force. One of the novels I hope we'll get to, I mean, my hope is that we'll, from here, when we finish, we'll do um, Moby Dick, which everybody has to read. Yeah, that lays bare the American character better than almost any work I know in America, but um, Moby Dick and Dos Gassi's brother Skirmazov and um, Faulkner's Go Down Moses, that's his answer to Melville. And then we'll do some short stories, um, Faulkner, Hemingway, and um, O'Connor. O'Connor's great work is her novel called The Violent Bared Away. She takes that title from this passage. What does this passage mean?
1: Perhaps that uh, evil cannot tolerate righteousness. Uh, so the, the kingdom of God is the establishment of is antagonistic to to uh, those who are of the world and uh, with power and so they they attack it with violence
2: right Herod John and it's also a foreshadowing of what will happen to Christ himself and all the early church
0: martyrs and disciples in the kingdom ever be taken? No. So what does this passage mean?
2: The gatekeepers of the kingdom here on earth are those who face themselves as gatekeepers.
0: So they can be taken. Oh, yeah. yeah, but it says the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and men of violence taken by force. This passage presents, has presented problems to church fathers. O'Connor uses it. Dante, Dante, by the way, founder O'Connor uses it um, in a way opposite to the one that most people use, and so does Dante. We read this passage. I remember t- stopping, but n- Dante uses this passage in the Perdiso to describe something. Interesting. I've never noticed. Go ahead, Dor- he's So
1: hung up on the violent bearing it away, he says, "From the days of John the Baptist until now, that's not very long."
0: All right he does he's not talking about all of the prophets that were killed centuries ago. Yeah. He's just talking about recent history. So what does it mean? I don't Shell, <laughs> <laughs> so, what does it mean? <laughs> A thought?
2: Uh,
0: Sure, go ahead Karen. Is he talking
1: about what's going to happen to
0: him? I don't know, is he? I think so. Explain that because he says, from the days of John until now, so this is, it has happened. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, it has suffered it, and men of violence taken by force. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I see the kingdom of God as being Jesus has now come on earth. He's ushering in the kingdom. And John the Baptist is a few months older than Jesus, and we have
0: all the Muslims, you know, there not yet. fighting. Yeah, no, not yet, but. Mm-hmm. Well, whoever. For the
1: Arabs. The Romans, yeah. The yeah. Right. The Romans, Right. Uh, have been ruling, and I guess things are getting worse. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They probably had gas embargoes or, 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 or something. So things are really bad. And you had the zealots. Oh, Simon, one of the apostles, was a zealot. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones that were looking for the holy war to take the kingdom that way. And. I think you just had a lot of weird philosophies that all had their own way of how the kingdom was going to come.
0: I don't think anybody thought it was going to come this way. Let me offer another thought that Church Fathers had, I mean, if you read the Church Fathers, you actually get two different opposite readings. One is the one you've given, Mike. The other is that... um, and it, it goes to me to this question of how do we look at Jesus and his human nature and divine, both. Um, in so many of these instances, um, particularly those where he's going outside of the, the chosen people, where he's encountering the other, and, and remember how important that was to Pope John Paul. Um, one of the major points of Fide was what he called this crossing cultural bound, that Christ himself was the model of that because in his own life, he found himself crossing, having to go out from the kingdom or the chosen people. One of the the ways in which, this is the way Dante reads it, and it's one of the ways some of the church fathers read it, um, that as Christ goes out to fulfill this task of of, um, fulfilling the law, satisfying the law, giving justice for our sins that we committed against God, um, he finds himself overcome by the by the faith and love of other people the centurion loved a slave so much that he went to christ he wasn't jewish the woman here um, loved her daughter so much that she she's willing to humiliate herself to say how even the masters the feed their dog scraps from the table how she put that I mean, can there be a greater humiliation than to liken yourself to dogs, begging for crumbs? And Christ says he was amazed. So in a number of these scenes, we see Christ himself so amazed at what he's encountering in these people outside the chosen people, that he's overcome, that the kingdom is overcome by love and taken away. So his whole purpose in, because remember, I mean, I think we have to take this seriously in some way. He came for the chosen people, came for the chosen people, even says that to the disciples. But again and again and again, he's overwhelmed by the love he finds in these people outside the chosen. He would, if you you were God and you had been raised a Jew, you would expect to come to the Jewish people and find them ready for a Messiah, the God. What he's finding is he's going outside and encountering these people and he's overwhelmed by them. He, they bear him away. They over, he's overcome by them, by their love, their faith. So he's encountering something here a number of times and I think, I think it's just important for us to at least entertain the idea that in his human nature, even if he's perfect, he's learning that things are happening to him. Could he have done this when he was 12? He was still God at 12, he didn't go out at 12, and I remember Suzanne, the way she described it, I thought it was wonderful, she said when she was young, she thought, he's God, he can do anything, except he's also human, he's so bound by his human nature, both, if we, if we do anything to undermine, to take that human nature away, I think we, we undermine the, how, how great what he did was. He had to be fully human fully divine and he's repeatedly he's up he's oh wait to go back to my word when I hear when I hear him rebuking Peter and I'll use the word like rebuke or anger or part of me wants to say my word it means it's almost like he's showing scorn how long do I have to put up with you but I, I just I'm always reminded that's the word I use even though people disagree but that's God speaking through a human mediation, human categories, human words. Don't, I mean don't forget he's completely both. So when he's getting impatient with his disciples it's important if when we see him rebuking them that it's it, it's not just the impatience of a man. This is a God who's come to do certain things and he's got to get these disciples. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny to watch him work with them, you know, when they're explaining these parables to me. And he says, how long do I have to do this? And so what I'm trying to do right now is just underscore he's fully both. We can't ever forget that. And to be fully human means what?
1: Yeah, because if he was using God, he would just tell the disciples to do this or make them do Do
0: it. Do it, right. Right. Right.
1: Have it come from within.
0: Patiently I mean, work yeah, with it. Yeah.
1: Now in yes, yeah.
0: This is my yeah. yeah. But God never violates our free will. I mean, even if he were just fully God and not human at right. all, he, he never violates our free will. Yeah. Yeah. He wouldn't force
1: anything on us. Yeah. No, he wouldn't. But you're talking about whether or not he's showing whether or not he's human or whether or not he's God. But consequently, that's why you got angry at the devil and all that, because he's human. He
0: and God. Don't.
1: <laughs> if he would have went in there and been God and prayed God or how, you know, showed God, he could have just went in there and said, "Hey, God blasted them all."
0: It. <laughs> if it were Zeus, they would have been blasted with a thunderbolt. It's just... what
2: kind of God, do you? <laughs> imagine? I don't understand. Okay, okay, so everyone...
0: Wait before you do. Wait before you do. Just, I. It's been said a couple of times tonight. You know, when he goes into the temple. He's fully human. I just want to say when he throws them out, yeah, he's fully human and he's fully God. He's really angry at them because they're violating his father's house. We can't ever separate them. I mean, I, the reason I'm saying that, I don't want to excuse what he did because it was human. T- I, I did this when we did Winter's Tale. Remember when her, um, Paulina gets really mad at the king. I remember my, my I told you, my colleague thought she lost it. I look at her anger and I think, God, that's as holy as you can get. I mean, she's she's doing she's doing what the men are afraid to do. She's really angry. It's not not like the anger is strictly a human characteristic. Right. Right. It's it's a justified response to injustice. Right. Right. Yeah. We just have to keep this, and I think it's hard. Go ahead. I'm sorry, because you, Alexis, you go.
2: have never seen a perfect man before, but Christ is that. And we have to know that. So when he rebukes Peter, it's because that is the best way to reach this man, Peter. Peter responds to that. He's kind of a hothead. This is the way to Peter's heart. This is the way to his understanding. Yeah. He doesn't respond to the other disciples that way because they have different personalities, but Christ knows the difference. <laughs> and the same with Psalm okay when he says my god my god why have you forsaken me he's directly quoting psalm 22 which foretold his own suffering what does that have
0: to do with whether he's god or human that moment a god can quote i mean he's god
2: right right so it's got layers
0: what's got layers
2: my god my god why have you forsaken me <laughs> the layer is first of all helpful to us in our suffering do we feel that my like, god has forsaken us whatever we can relate but also, it's you know, it's scripture that Jews at the time would recognize. And the end of that psalm is that no matter what happens in all my suffering, I believe in God, and He is my support and my strength and whatever. Psalm twenty-two. <laughs> it says it right in the Don't
0: no, we've got to go. Listen, because we could. I, I I mean, this is getting. Um, you're not saying. This is really good. You're not saying that. Um, Anger is inappropriate is only a human thing. It's not appropriate for God because we see God getting angry a lot in the Old Testament. We see God we see God getting angry here with Christ getting angry at people.
2: Is God getting angry or is it people's understanding of what's happening and their kind of earlier understanding at that point in salvation history of interpreting events because they just they, you know, Christ hadn't come with
0: love and mercy and all the things that he brings to civilization yet anybody else it's
2: like a bronze age mentality of a what interpreting events a what a bronze age
0: <laughs> oh did you say bronte or bronze age, bronze age. oh one of the things i want to i want to go to this right now in the parables i want to get to a couple of things before we leave tonight Um. um One of the things that's important not to lose sight of here, I mean anger is not, we have said this over and over and over again, anger is not a bad thing. In our world it's treated as bad. It's a natural response. Anger is the um, rectifying virtue. You know, you get angry when something, you have to defend something you love is in danger. You can't get angry, it's gonna be a serious question whether you're gonna be able to defend whatever it is you're going up against. Anger is a good thing. Rage is a sin. Um, so, um, it, in all of these th- instances that we're talking about here, you know, God, God's, hum- Christ's humanity and his divinity, I'm trying to hold on to both of them completely. It's important to never forget that this is St. Thomas, this is the Church Fathers, that um, That very often in the language used to describe God, we're using um, analogies. So if you're, for example, if you if you talk about God pitying, God doesn't pity anybody. That's a metaphor, it's a way of describing because it's human. God loves. He never stops loving. I tried to make this distinction before. Pity means feeling, identifying with somebody who's in with suffering, so you're partly doing it for yourself. Love means doing something for the good of another, completely. God doesn't desire anything. He's complete. Desire is an expression of something incomplete, wanting more. God's complete. So however we see him, we have to see him as complete love. Whatever he offers, it's always love, complete love. So whatever he's doing to work with us, it's an expression of his love. Okay. When we use language to, dis- to describe what's going on in God, and it's, it's highlighted with Christ because he is God, he's both, we have to be aware that we're often using analogies. We're using terms that mean something to us to apply to God, so it's like we're anthropomorphizing, we're turning God into something human so that we can relate to it. I'm not trying to discourage anybody, I'm saying just be aware that that's something to We have to take care with. I want to, I want to make that clear if I can. Go to 15, he goes to the Canaanite woman, this is when he says, I answer, I was sent only to the lost sheep, this is Christ again. So this is not somebody expanding his borders, I don't think, he's not gradually going out. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and now, and he's overcome, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you, as, um, and she was healed. He's come f- for that lost sheep. When he's trying to describe the kingdom, um, he does it in terms of parables. Um, God. Um, here. This is when he's teaching the disciples. He's preparing his church. Robert, what's the citation? Sorry, it's, I'm, I'm coming to a addu- dog. He's preparing his church. So he's teaching his disciples, and they're getting more and more con- um, um, frustrated because they don't always understand what he's doing. 13:10, they come and say, Why do you do this in parables? to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of the heaven but to them it has not been given for to him who has more will be given he has not he's not what he will have taken away this is why I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand with them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy just for a second I don't want to dwell on this why is he not teaching everybody what he's teaching his disciples He'll start, what he'll do right now is give a number of parables likening the kingdom to something. But why is he not teaching everybody parables? It seems unkind. He, he wastes all of it. Explain it. Well, he, he expects some activity, some um, virtue on their own part that will allow them to, to take part, so the so seat
2: doesn't fall on barren ground. Yeah. So he gives the
0: example. I'm gonna, you're nicer than I would <laughs> uh, <before> <laughs> get. Yeah, an evil swine. Because what? What if you give? I mean, this goes to the power he gives. I want to get to that before we leave tonight. Why he gives Peter that extraordinary power? What if you good give? You give like the Pharisees. Everything he does, they see as evil. Everything they, he does, they see as evil. So when he when he performs a miracle, they see it as bad. They they call him um, demonized. He's working under Beelzebub. So everything he does, they see as evil. What if you give the secrets to the kingdom to people who are going to use it in evil ways? How much power will they exercise over people who don't see through it? Um, Wolves in sheep's clothing? Priests. I mean, we don't need to go through the history of the church for the last 10 years, or Dante's time, because you know that Dante's hell was full of priests and popes that the danger is that people can put too much trust in appearances of holiness when people can take the best things given to them and use them for evil purposes. By the way, did you get my, did you get my email about Communio and subscribing? Yeah, congratulations on that. Thanks. I, w- I wish you'd really read that because it's exactly about this. What Iago, you read all of Shakespeare, he, he and Dante rule the world in terms of wisdom about the world. Um, Shakespeare's Othello is his treatment of modern America. There's there is no more evil character in all of Shakespeare than Iago. No king has the power to do what Iago does. That's in a democracy in in which people's free wills are prided more than anything. what, What about a democracy makes it likely for somebody like Iago to do what he does? So I think he's I mean, once again, Christ is being careful because he, he knows what can come of it. But here, here's where I wanted to go. He's teaching the disciples about the kingdom, and he says he, again and again, um, a kingdom is like this, the kingdom is like this. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good. Um, another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. He told another, kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid. Um, he goes on and on. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. This is um, 1345. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. The kingdom of heaven is like a net. Um, all these parables likening the kingdom to something on earth. Why is he doing that? Yeah. What was Benedict's principal concern in the Regensburg Address with Islam and the fundamentalist Christian? What was wrong? What was he concerned about? Test time. It, it
1: was a question about whether religion could be transmitted Uh, by force.
0: Yeah, that was serious, yeah. The the serious concern he had was the the absence of any sense of a logos, a logos for the Islam and the Christian fundamentalists, Because the Christian fundamentalist believes nature is corrupt. Logos means the presence of a logos, uh, the logos is the presence of some kind of reasonableness in nature. So the Iliad was sung, you know, by Homer, a goddess singing through him. That's an example of the logos. The, some reasonableness that touches the divine that's present in nature. So the Logos can be a song, it can be a piece of wisdom, it can be reason, but it always means there's something rational, intelligible, meaningful there that has a divine quality. The Logos is present in nature, everywhere. If it weren't, the sciences couldn't exist. All sciences presume that there's something there that's intelligible to grasp. Take the Logos away, the sciences disappear. That's why that was so important to benefit, that's why that address was so important to the 20th century. Islam does away with it. Christian fundamentalist does away with it. If you do away with the logos, his argument was, you do away with any affinities between our kingdom, the earthly kingdom, and the world. We have no way of talking about it. Everything's Christ doing is showing his awareness of the logos. And the irony is, the logos is existing in nature, in everything, who's present giving these parables the logos himself the word the logos is the word in nature there's this intelligibility it's like remember we've been using this Mary we've been doing this from there everything in nature speaks remember in, the, in the, the scissors the sewing in the supernatural every in Hopkins the the kingfisher the bell everything speaks everything's alive with meaning there's a logos in nature who's giving these parables the logos, the Word, it's Christ. The two of them are coming together. He's teaching his disciples to, to not look past everything that's human and earthly to get to what's divine. They've got to work with that or they'll met, they'll not get people to him. because what he he's the only person who's ever brought the two together. That's what the Incarnation means. The, hum, it, it, the God and human become one. After that unification everything, it, that was um, John Paul's argument, fide ratio, faith and reason, we have to do everything we can to keep those two powers together because if we don't we're undermining the incarnation because in the incarnation they're both fulfilled. So what's going on here is that Christ is reaffirming the affinity between the human and divine, Doing what Suzanne said, that he's taking all these earthly things to show their ways of getting to the kingdom. It's right here, and all of you, I mean so many of you said it, Mary said it, and Karen, the kingdom's here. It's here right now. It's in a human form. It's here. So what we're called to as Catholics in our belief is to participate in that shared kingdom, that it's present. We can't forget that. It's here now. Can't forget it. No matter what's going on in the world, I mean, that was Boethys' great argument. God is always at work, here now. Christ revealed the kingdom. It's here. Do we see it? Everything we've been doing for the last year or two or what has been to find him at work, here, now, Um, One last thing, because we're over today. Why did Christ give Peter that power? Remember when he says, what do people, who do they say I am? Where where is that? Um, Somebody help me here. Sorry. Oh, here in 16, the very end of our... The disciples come back and he says, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, because remember those two religious, and they're religious groups. Islam is religious, fundamentalist Christian religious. Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees, because both of those groups live under the law. They define their lives. So when they see things they can't explain, they want a sign. They they want to have everything under their control. Christ is shattering that everywhere. It says be be aware of that. And they discuss it among themselves, saying, "We brought no bread." <laughs> he just performed a miracle, <laughs> feeding the four thousand, and they're saying, "We brought no bread." Do you not yet? <laughs> do you, I'm going to use the sorry? Bear, be patient. Be patient with me. I'm going to use the word scorn, but but for me that has a because I'm. that's God. (laughs) Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves? (laughs) He's just performed this thing, or the seven loaves, the 4,000. How is it you fail to perceive that I did not speak about the bread? Beware of the leaven of the... He's repeating himself. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Be careful of them. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They said some say John, some Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father Who is in heaven and I tell you you are Peter and on this rock uh, um, I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Hell cannot withstand it. I love those two. We just saw that passage earlier the violent bear it away. That's a hard passage to read and here the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They can't stop God's love. Evil cannot. I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. Why does he give that power to Peter? That's an extraordinary power, right? Whoever you bind, whoever you loose, that's extraordinary. And he didn't give it to anybody else, he gave it to Peter. By the way, I, there's an argument. I mean, you, I don't want to press this stuff. To you, The argument can be made that this may be the I mean, it's one of the beginnings of the church. Sure. He's conferring it here. I mean, people market it different with and But certainly there's something to be said for this because he's giving Peter this authority. But my question now is why, why is he giving Peter this authority here? He says it right there. It seems to be at the volition of the Father himself. Right. It's possible
2: why is it, that Christ didn't... Humanity did not know who the Father wanted him to give this authority to, and he was just waiting for someone to identify him correctly, and that was the sign
0: I know, but my question is, why? This is an extraordinary power. It's not an ordinary authority. Why? Why such an extraordinary power? Why does he give it to Peter? This is extraordinary. No other man has it. He doesn't give it to anybody else. And on this rock I will build my he church. All, didn't he? Yeah, he will, yes. Yes, I, I'm just asking why, this is awesome, why did he do this?
2: Why did he give it to any man?
0: No, why did he, no, why does he give this power? That's an extraordinary power. It gives it to Peter, but.
2: So is the question, why did he give it to Peter?
0: Or why did he give, why it, does he give it at all? Why, my question is, why did he give this extraordinary power? It's rather difficult to have a church without it. Because, explain it. Chuck, why? Well, he why? needs the, the apostolic succession, which it becomes, but he needs, the, he needs the living presence of the Church on earth in other form other than himself. To bind and loose? Yes. So go ahead, I don't say. Paul, did you have something? Right. right. And he said, my, my father has revealed this to you. Right. And I was, you know, right. to the of the kingdom. he's a king. He's the first apostle that actually said that back to Jesus to write the medicine. Yeah. You remember, we went over this before. I, it, it always bears going over again. You remember what taking of the auspices is in the pagan world? What is it? Looking like, uh, uh,
1: for a sign from God to uh, uh, confirm. Right.
0: Does everybody remember that? In the pagan world, you see it in the Iliad, you see it in the Odyssey, you see it in the Aeneid, all of them. Whenever there's an omen, and it's an, and it's an important omen like Aeneas when he sees the, the sow with the pigs, that's an omen um, and it it, it prophecy is something about the nature of rome rome will, will not be the the big horse that it, that was the image of um, dido in carthage the the logo the you know the image of carthage was this noble horse the the logo for rome was a sow with her 30 piglets that it was a nurturing of everybody it wasn't heroic it would make a place for everybody that's that's what made rome so great and that's why Aeneas had to fight so hard for it because everybody in the ancient world was fighting to be heroic, great, different, more powerful. Rome was the eternal city because it made a place for everybody. It's already prefiguring Christ. But a taking of the auspices is you get an omen, Odysseus had it the night before the battle. He hears this woman cry out, remember she says, I hope Zeus will take vengeance on these suitors who've been eating me out of house and home. And suddenly Zeus sends a lightning bolt and Odysseus knows that that's a prophecy. The Catholic Church will never take a a vision, an appearance, an apparition at face value. They will always search it out because we all know the religious imagination could go nuts, always. So what's interesting about this moment is it's exactly like the pagan moment. Peter's been given something nobody else has, who confirms it? God himself. It's an amazing moment. Peter's given a vision, right? Nobody else had it. He sees, and Christ knows only God could have done that. Who confirms it? Christ, who's God. It's an amazing moment. You can say this is the beginning of the authority of the church. It's the, it's the Father with the Spirit working through a human person, Peter. And moreover, once that's done, once the taking of the auspices is over, Christ says, nobody on this rock I will build my church. Whoever you bind will be bound, whoever you lose. That is, he's giving him complete authority over evil. If the church doesn't have that there's no way it can answer all, all that's going to attack it over. The, I mean, one of the proofs of the church's t- truthfulness is that it has existed this long. Because there's no institution on the earth that has been so hurt by inner turmoil from evil from inside than the Catholic Church. Right from the beginning. And it's always withstood it. Because its authority rests in God. In a human being, that's the amazing center of our faith. Let me stop. Any questions or arguments? <laughs> I hope you know how much I'm enjoying this. I miss you when you're not here. Can't? Yeah, yeah. Call.
1: I think it, does it say anyone? No what one. Is it among those born of women. It doesn't say men. That's okay. It's everybody
0: because it's you can't be born. Among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Up to John's birth, yeah. Maybe it meant like in all of history up to the time that John was born, oh. but no, Mary. was no, no, but no, no, no. Mary was saved
1: without sin, so she was not kind of born of woman because she was born of a woman. I think he kind of ranks John and Mary as
0: well. how yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. yeah, born of a woman, and I mean, it's I don't want to quit, but. You know, that Mary was born by the Holy Spirit, too, Um, so it was a divine, yeah. Yeah,
1: but, yeah, but, but,
0: but. I, I think it means everybody among those, but Mary was also conceived by the Holy Spirit and, you know, John wasn't. It's interesting that that um, John and Christ are linked in that, you know, and Elizabeth goes to visit Mary too. We've got to stop because I'm trying to hold my, I'm trying to get better at not always doing very well at this. We finish Matthew next week. Um, be, if you can, read the end of um, John and compare the two endings, the visit to the tomb, just, to, just so that we can raise this question again about contradictions. Because it's a serious one. It's pretty. So look at those two readings and see what you think, okay? You guys have a good week. Um, be safe and see you next week. Congratulations on your publication. Oh, thanks. Thank I just, you. I just subscribed. I hope you guys will all contribute. Um, um,